0: Hi, this is Against Everyone with Conor Habib, a weekly podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex philosophical, spiritual, and political ideas in an engaging and accessible way. It's a show not about small talk, but about big talk. And this episode is Big Talk, and it's one of my favorite episodes that I've ever done. It's with Dr. Thomas Waters, a witchcraft and magic scholar from the Imperial College in London, and author of the amazing book Cursed Britain, A History of Witchcraft and Black Magic in Modern Times. I've been preoccupied for a long time with uh, the ways in which witchcraft has been Uh, prevented, and occultism has been prevented, from entering into serious philosophical and political, especially leftist political, discourse. Uh, If you listen to the show, you know that I bring those kinds of things up again and again. (laughs) I'm really interested in it. And the way that it used to sort of take place, um, or the way witchcraft used to be dismissed, was just ridicule. Oh, this is just stupid. These are fairy tales, all that. But I think over time, um, historians have uh, really begun to understand that Because witchcraft and the occult were so important to so many groups of people, and why is that, it might be worthwhile for academic study, and has then, you know, the historians and academics have therefore sort of said, well, we declare witchcraft, uh, you know, serious and worthy of attention. As such, um, different groups with different political aims have claimed witchcraft as a kind of Uh, expression of or proof of their theories. So we see this with Marxists, we see this with feminists, and so forth. And not to say that any of those explorations or those claimings don't have value. I talk about this quite a bit on this episode. They do, but they tend to dismiss uh, the reality um, and the importance and the interest, and also kind of the fun, of witchcraft and occultism uh, as a phenomena, as a structure, as a framework in and of itself. Thomas's book, I think, is kind of a nail in the coffin of that kind of theoretical revisionism. And so I really love it. It's a challenging book. It's a dense book that he wrote, um, well, researched and then wrote over a period of 15 years and is full of all kinds of crazy, um, interesting, exciting, funny, absurd, and really tragic and cruel uh, characters, because it charts uh, witchcraft in the UK and its colonies over 200 years time, from 1800s to roughly about the present. And that uh, journey of writing this book really transformed Thomas as well, and we talk about how, and how he has been sort of led through his own skepticism um, into Uh, Well, you'll see uh, on the episode (laughs) where that goes. Um, We also sort of talk about how this figure of the witch as a marginalized figure, as someone who's outside of economies or just uh, merely desperate or oppressed, uh, might not be the most fitting uh, version of our image of the witch because... Donald Trump and Margaret Thatcher and Nancy Reagan and Kamala Harris, not to mention others, come up in this episode as figures that have accessed some kind of witchcraft or occult stuff. Now, before you think I'm getting uh, Alex Jonesy conspiratorial, just stay pretty close to the surface on all of that and uh, give examples that you can look into yourself. But also, um, Thomas's book really focuses on the perspective of the victims of witchcraft. That's why this episode is called uh, The Victims of Witchcraft and The Witchcraft of Victims, because it's taking the phenomena seriously from the get-go and saying a lot of people have been really harmed by witches. Now what do we do? How do we interpret this instead of thinking that the witch is a pure, oppressed never wrong, kind of person resisting uh, power. So um, as a result, this character of the de-witcher comes up, this de-witching figure, and we talk about that quite a bit too. These people that practice something that looks like witchcraft, or maybe even is witchcraft, as kind of anti-witches, people that sort through all the hoaxes and the real stuff and the spells and the illusions of spells and all that and create solutions for people that are in need and also a fuller and more complex and more thoughtful picture of witchcraft and we talk about why that figure might be desperately needed in today's landscape um I'm so happy to have had this conversation with Thomas, you know, and I want to say, you know, if you read this book, it will be challenging to you no matter what side you're on. If you're really into witchcraft, there are some declarative statements that you might find yourself not agreeing with, but just wait to see where Thomas goes with them, because often he'll take a twist or a turn, and it's very interesting. There's a sort of legal conclusion at the end of the book that is a little weird, for instance, but then he takes it in a really cool, uh, direction. And so I challenge you to keep going, or if you are just a total uh, secular atheist kind of person, you'll be really enthralled by the history uh, in this book. So uh, I'm hyping up the book a lot, but really just listen to the episode as well, and you'll see all the directions it takes uh, kind of overlay some of the directions that the book takes. I Also wanted to say that Thomas uh, recites a Wordsworth poem in the middle of the episode, (laughs) and he does it in this really kind of enchanting and calming voice, and it's really lovely. So uh, if you want to learn more about some of the things that we talk about, because there's lots of books and authors brought up in this episode, go to the show notes, which are on patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib and anybody can go there. It's available to everyone, and you can click uh, through to books that we talk about, different thinkers. Um, there's some images on there. There's a transcript of the poem that he recites, and so on and so forth. And also, um, if you are a patron, uh, you can leave comments about uh, maybe how you got into witchcraft. I asked Thomas, you know, what was, how'd you get into it? And he names this book that he got from Sainsbury's. This is, you know uh store chain of stores in the UK when he was a kid was there an introductory book to this kind of stuff for you um, were you interested in it as a kid and um, so forth I'd love to hear from it from you about it but I've got to also say I would love if you supported the show through patreon so when you go there patreon.com forward slash Connor and Beeb, there's an option to join the patreon why should you do that? Because this show is only funded by listeners um by patrons on patreon It's very simple to do. basically, Patreon is like Kickstarter for artists. You give uh, a little bit of money every month or a lot of bit of money if you want, and uh, whatever fits your financial situation and it just comes out automatically and supports the show. So if you think to yourself, you know, I would buy Connor uh, a candy bar or a latte or something like that once a month because I love listening to the show, and I'm enriched by it, and he's almost up to 100 episodes now, so there's a huge backlog for me to dip in and listen to. Please support the show on patreon.com forward slash Connor Beeb. It's also this sort of pitch right now is the reason why I don't have sponsors at the top of the show where I'm trying to sell you some sort of dumb product, which... I'm glad other podcasters have a way to support their shows, but I would really prefer to just do this through a kind of association with the people that listen to the show and who love it because I'm giving and I'd love for you to give back. And then we're just like uh, kind of hanging out together in support. And I love that. So. Last time, patreon.com forward slash Connor Abib. Press pause and go there now. It's so easy to sign up. It'll take you five minutes. Also, please do give the show a five-star rating on iTunes. When you get a lot of five-star ratings, It's not even based on the average, but when you get a lot of five-star ratings on iTunes, it boosts the visibility of it. Um, So it would be great to have more five-star ratings like that and leave a review if you absolutely love the show and say how much you absolutely love it. Okay, that's it. That's the pitch. That's the intro. And now it's time to uh, share this conversation about witches, witchcraft, the occult, de-witchers. It's just awesome. Here we go. Hey Everybody's Against Everyone with Connor Habib. I am so excited to be here with you, Thomas Waters. Hello. Hi,
1: Connor. Hi, listeners. <laughs> You're the
0: first person on the show ever that's addressed the listeners. Do you know that?
1: I didn't know that, but I like to be polite. <laughs> <laughs> All right.
0: Well, so um, I wanted to start with a conversation I had with a friend. Okay, so I told her about the research I was going to start doing in my uh, doctoral degree. Mm. Um, my friend Mona El-Tahawi, who's been on the show. And I'd mentioned to her about um, people, women who had been sexually assaulted by paranormal entities. And like, I was trying to sort of talk about what happens when we don't believe that the perpetrator exists, you know, and how we deal with that. And it's very interesting. She told me this story about, um, I think it was in Egypt, these women who said, that they were owned by genies. These married women mm. said so that so they could no longer have sex with their husbands. Right. Yep. And we both laughed about it for a second. And I was like, yeah, but see, like we always do this. We always go to the place where we think it's a strategy of some sort and that the genie isn't real. And like, isn't it yep. interesting that we go there and, <clears throat> So that's a question that's always on my mind when I read books like yours that are about witchcraft or supernatural or occult sort of themes and history in the present day. But you start with disbelief like in the book, which is really interesting. And you go a long ways to frame uh, a lot of the ways in which we dismiss the phenomena and to kind of pull that apart. So maybe we can start, maybe we can start there. Yeah.
1: Yes, I lay a lot of stress on the states of mind of belief and disbelief in Cursed Britain. And the reason I do that is that I think when many of us speak about belief particularly, we do so in quite a casual and an unreflective and an imprecise way. Belief's often used as a synonym just for notion or idea, but I think belief's at least when it comes to magic and religion and spirituality more generally has a more kind of particular content is, is more distinctive. It's not, not just an idea or a notion. It's really trying to make yourself think a certain way, to see the world a certain way, to perceive the world a certain way. And I, I think that something that's underestimated in a lot of accounts of religion and of magic is the power of belief, the power of willed belief, of summoned belief, of, of practice belief—the whole point of quite a lot of religion and magic. I wouldn't say all religion and magic, but but quite a lot—is that it's hard to believe in something like that. The phenomena are amazing, are obscure, are difficult, and the challenge is to make yourself believe in it. And well, you know, today and in the past, in fact, if you know, if you go to various magical healers. Um, providers of magical services or indeed of religious services they will say to their clients or their parishioners or their customers that if you want this to work if you want these forces to be summoned and to be directed you need to believe you've got to make yourself believe i know it's hard but But you you have to. So so what I'm trying to say is that I think the, the dynamic of belief and disbelief and kind of moving between belief and disbelief, that that's fundamental to the experience of religion and magic. And I don't feel that that's something that's really conveyed in a lot of the writing on this topic. At any rate, a lot of the scholarly writing, I don't think that's true necessarily of the writing by practitioners.
0: Yeah. Okay. so I want to get back to that bit of it. Uh, maybe a little bit later but yeah. whereas like belief is sort of a tactic or an ingredient or constitutive of some magic and witchcraft mm. but also I want to talk about the ways in which we think only certain people believe in it right so like in the US there's this common misconception that UFO abductees or people that believe in UFOs are just poor yep. like stupid poor back country people so already there's a classist you know component to that but um I think you know when when the research has been done there's a great book surveying all that uh, paranormal America it's called and um it says, like, no, actually, it's, like, actually, a lot of these encounters are reported, actually, the majority of them are reported by people who are uh, upper middle class, upper class, you know, upper Mm. middle class, to upper class, you know, and um, I think you frame that as well. So that's one way of doing it. Like, people try to sort of shove it into these, like, demographic or identity or class pockets, right? And then there's another way of doing it, which is, like, the sort of feminist, revisionism of history where it's like, well, these, these were really just women who are being persecuted for being women when in fact like, Mm. well, no, you point out like half the accusers, you know, of witches were women as well. So it's not Mm. quite as simple. I mean, obviously we can talk about concepts of patriarchy, but I think like what that leads to is an acceptance that there is some sort of ontological, um, weight or heft to the phenomena itself, which is, it seems like there are so many ways to sort of wriggle out of it. Yeah. And, um, you refuse to let that go in this book, which is good. I mean, I want to talk about maybe some of the ways it goes, but like you refuse to actually just like give it up at any point throughout this book. Um, so yeah, maybe you can talk about that a little bit.
1: Certainly. When people are struggling to explain or account for these seemingly anomalous phenomena for magic and spirituality and esoteric experiences, supernatural experiences. As you say, there's a tendency to kind of locate them at the fringes of society and at the fringes of culture, to do a really kind of crude sociology of belief. I think, as you were intimating, to to suggest that it's uneducated people or it's only marginalised people that take um, Sort of radically supernatural ideas seriously. That stuff's I- invariably overstated. Those kind of ideas. It's a way of dismissing and marginalising those kind of uh, those kind of notions. As you say, belief in kind of radical spiritualities is found in pretty much all social groups. Um, more so than one would think. Having said that, there is there there is a, there is a sociology of uh a, a belief there these isn't although they these ideas are found in in all social groups they're not found to the same extent mm-hmm. so i'm so, um, i'm not i don't want to go too far in dismissing the the, the sociology of belief but equally uh, as you say i think we need to be very mindful of of, of how it's been this way of uh Locating these ideas at the fringes of society, how it's been used politically, basically, to, to marginalize people, to not have to take these beliefs seriously. And it, and it often means that if, if you're studying a topic or you, you're writing about it, if you just say, oh, it's just kind of, you know, it's, 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 it's a form of protest for marginalized people or it's a form of escapism or, you know, following various uh, left wing interpretations of religion, that, you know, it's some sort of opium for the people, that, that kind of thing. It, it's a way of shortcutting the explanation i th- i think of often it just it it doesn't it doesn't do justice to the um uh, to to the to the phenomena
0: yeah i mean that's been one of the most sort of frustrating things to me about the way slowly magic and occultism and these sorts of things have found their way into a little bit into leftist discourse right but has mm. been really frustrating to me that the way that they're framed in terms of mere political economy I mean obviously if like if you're like a certain kind of marxist like political economy is everything you see and that's it you know it's like every <laughs> mm. <laughs> that that totalizes like all the discourse but i mean i think you know for instance when i think of silvia federici like saying well these you know people were witches are you know condemned or attacked because they are non-productive members of you know a a culture and they're sort of defined the economic rule and all that and i just think well that's interesting and also of course all the the sort of identity currents that run through these are interesting but it's also about witchcraft. <laughs> like, yeah. it's also like, we, can we include that that's what, and also it plays out differently in different cultures and, you know, and in di- di- different places and, you know, with different kinds of witches, which you, we'll talk about later, these de witchers and all that sort of stuff, which I, and the cunning folk and all that, which I think was really great to include. But I just think it's like that to me, those kinds of explanations always seem so. Um,
1: sort of reductive, aren't they? Or, you know, they, they make the phenomena about something else. You know, witchcraft yeah. stops being the central aspect of the topic. It stops being the thing you're centrally focusing on. And instead, it becomes about the economy of a particular time and place or the labor market and, and yeah. so on. And those those things are um, their influences, their they're, they're factors. But it, it just yeah, it moves magic and the occult to, to the side when it's, it's not what you want to do. I think the trouble with these kind of explanations... I wouldn't want to discard them totally. They need to figure somewhere, but they don't really appreciate what magic does for people, uh, what it does for um, you know. You just focusing on the people who are being blamed for witchcraft. It 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 really it, you don't at all start to touch on how you know what it's what it feels like for somebody to believe they're cursed, for example. What you know, people who are suffering from appalling misfortunes, you know sinking under the weight of life's difficulties ill health lost jobs relationship problems and so on what does it feel like to reinterpret those misfortunes and to start to wonder to start to ask yourself actually are these not just um, they're not just bad luck they're not just ordinary problems secular problems that there might be a curse behind them you know does that do something for in, in a strange in a weird way can that could that help someone to come to terms with otherwise overwhelming and suffocating misfortunes? So so ultimately what I'm trying to say is these, I suppose, these kind of socioeconomic interpretations of the people who are being accused of, of witchcraft, they end up neglecting the, 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 the psychology of, of, of magic, the experience of magic, which is... Which is, I think, it should be at the heart of the subject, and is can be very profound, um, moving, and these can be sort of seminal experiences for people.
0: Yeah. So, like, I think it may be a way of saying it is like, just, you know, for some of these Marxist analyses or feminist analyses or whatever. Like, I don't mind them. You know, the thing I mind is when they crowd out having any kind of qualitative uh, immersion in what's happening. So yeah. it becomes like this sort of form-fitting, theory-proving sort of thing when, in fact, like, actually there's a lot to be, you know, uh, given to us. So, like, it, it is interesting to think, well, there was a huge, like, witch hunt going on. Right around the time when capitalism emerges, like to me, that's really fascinating. But my interest would be like, okay, so what? Like, if capitalism functions on a certain, like uh, a certain idea of time and how time unfolds and how that's related to exchange and cause and effect in the economy, and witchcraft actually has at that moment um, different ideas of how time works and you know and and causality. That to me is way more. That's something I want to investigate. It's not the stopping point. It's not just like, well, they didn't do it like capitalism, so therefore blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, but what were they doing? What could that give to me? And so there's a lot of ways in which it just sort of crowds out, you know, the things that we can learn. And so your idea of desperation, it's like, what is it? You know, someone is feeling um, desperate in their circumstances, but their minds are turning towards... Um, curses they're not turning toward they're turning towards a different kind of analysis of you know their circumstance and what can we learn from that and what can we take from that and then also take from what they did to sort of resist and navigate all that kind of stuff as well
1: Indeed it relates to the first point you were making about the limitations of quite simplistic socio-economic analysis of of of, of magic what you'll find is that people who end up believing they're bewitched at any rate the people that I study in my book the people in the last two centuries in Britain who've eventually have decided that they are cursed or afflicted with some sort of malign magic many of them didn't believe in witchcraft they didn't believe in curses they didn't believe in magic they thought it was impossible they thought it was it was nonsense it was risable it was a superstition they were sceptics um, they were sceptics until they weren't until life changed until they struggled to cope with you know all manner of absolutely dreadful problems, and and then they started to think differently. They started to wonder: is is there any value in looking at this looking at this differently? And this kind of interpretation of uh, the psychology of magic, and you know, putting the psychology of magic at the centre of the the study, the kind of hints that it, it should be there in some other accounts of the history of witchcraft. I'm I'm thinking here, for example, of there's a book called Witches and Neighbours by a guy called Robin Briggs, which is one of my favourite accounts of witchcraft in what, you know, historians awkwardly call the early modern period in the period of the witch trials. And towards the end of that book, Robin Briggs has a nice remark when he kind of sums up what witchcraft was all about. He said, witchcraft, it was uh, one of the therapeutic systems of early modern Europe. Mm. And... I, I wanted to try and explore that idea further. how you know when we think about witchcraft you know accusing someone of doing black magic black magic or you know evil magic or and being afflicted yourself, it all sounds hopelessly negative. It sounds like the kind of thing that's just could only be dedicated to victimizing people and you know could only be harmful and it, in in many respects it is it is deeply harmful and it 's very harmful in the world today. But you have to wonder, you know, these these people that changed their minds, that ended up thinking they were cursed, ended up going to white witches and to conjurers and, in fact, fortune tellers and others, looking for looking for help. Did they get something out of these shifts in perception? Did it did it help them? Did it help them come to terms with their problems? And and I, I think there's a lot to be said for interpreting. Some aspects of magic as 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 a therapeutic system.
0: Yeah, well, okay. So I will push you on that a little yeah. bit later. Um, but I think <laughs> not not in a disagreeable sense, but I just want to hear more. Um, you know. I think it's very clear, you know, when people, for instance, if someone has cancer, and they try to get a certain kind of Western treatment, and it's not working for them, and they go to alternative Mm. medicines, and sometimes that works, you know, there's no denying that sometimes that's helpful to people for whatever reason, it is helpful to them. Now, I have my own ideas about what modes of healing work and which ones don't but I think we'd be really disingenuous to say that that doesn't happen sometimes you know and so I think this is another sort of example of that um, where people are desperate for a solution it's not also as if they hadn't tried other things yep. you know so it's not as if they hadn't gone the routes that we might go absolutely
1: you know? that's uh, most of the people that I write about had they'd been ill and they'd gone to the doctors first they'd right. lost their jobs and they'd left home and they'd tramped around, as people used to say in the Victorian period, looking for new work. They'd fallen out with their partners and their families and they'd tried to make it up with them. And none, none of the usual remedies works. So right. then you'd try the alternative.
0: Well, and I think, but I think it, it presents something that's interesting for us to pull apart. Like, this idea of, like, that it's all bullshit, you know, basically, that it's nonsense. Yeah. Like, that actually seems to me like an actively deployed tactic of certain people and institutions in power to stop people from accessing these pathways. Right. And I don't mean in a conspiratorial way, like, well, maybe I mean a little bit way, but <laughs> let me pull back for a little bit. Like first, let me make the point that the way which is our so often, which you don't do, which is great is like, well, witchcraft and magic is framed as a technique of the people that uh, like disenfranchised people versus the overwhelming forces. And we're even doing it maybe a little bit now in the way we're talking about it. Mm. But in fact, it's like, okay, like, what the fuck, why is the president being sworn in on the Bible? Why are people, why is our picture of Donald Trump and like these other political leaders with their hands on a glowing orb? Like that thing is so crazy to me too. Why the Reagans consult psychics? Kamala Harris was linked to this like Freemason police force. It's like none of that's conspiratorial. That's all very, just look at it. It's in mainstream papers, mainstream images. You don't have to go down a YouTube rabbit hole to discover that. Obviously these things are techniques also and use also by by the people that have a tremendous influence on culture and have a lot of... And so, you know, it's like, you might want to investigate this because they have and they're using it. And I sometimes think it's like this whole idea of like, well, that's all stupid. That's not part of how the world really works is actually like a way... It's like a disenfranchising, further marginalizing way to sort of get people to give up investigating you know, um, the structures that hold up a certain kind of society, and certain kind of
1: culture. It's almost like a defense mechanism as well. I think that's why we don't appreciate how widely believed in various supernatural forces are amongst you know, relatively powerful and well-educated people, is because these ideas are that you know that it's all a load of rubbish. You know, quite sort of um, uh, s- simplistic skepticism. They're they're very current, aren't they? These sort of throwaway cliches are the first sort of things people will say when you introduce many people, anyway, when you introduce the topic, and you, you know, particularly in, I suppose, on on you know on the television in the newspapers. That's, that 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 sort of thing. It, just a way of, of hiding, I suppose, these controversial. Ideas are very, very contra- controversial I- ideas. They're more visible, I suppose, amongst marginalised groups and more, more hidden. As you, as you say, you know, the re- uh, Nancy Reagan, it became known was consulting as- astrologers and Ronald Reagan was listening to her. I think people would be surprised actually if they, uh, if, if if they looked at how many of our politicians have have dabbled in in magic or the esoteric in in some ways. You know, even even Margaret Thatcher in this country you know Mar- Margaret Thatcher was the first Prime Minister with uh, with a science degree you know she had a chemistry degree from Oxford U- University and she's seen as the sort of archetypal no-nonsense person and in many respects she was but she had a few Oh, she had some good-look charms that she seemed to carry around a a bit, you know, I think Barbara, the novelist Barbara Cartland gave her one or something. And, you know, there's bits and pieces you pick it out in, uh, in biographies about her, about uh, you know, occasionally visiting fortune tellers. One doesn't know how much this was done for fun. Occasionally um,
0: sacrificing a black lamb to the. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> Some people will believe that, yes.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> would we be surprised? Well, I mean, obviously the monarchy like is linked to these, you know, sorts of. Uh, these sorts of structures, ideas, ways of viewing the world. I mean, like, uh, you know, this great book by David Graeber and Marshall Sahlins that came out a couple of years ago called On Kings is, you know, an exploration of how kingship is, you know, finds its roots in a supernatural structure. And so even when you find cultures that don't have any kind of monarchy, especially when you're talking about certain mm-hmm. indigenous or whatever word you might want to use that's better than indigenous cultures, um, like there are always sort of spiritual meta persons who represent kind of cosmic kingships, you know and so like when we have some of these structures, in fact, are based on, you know, the idea like spiritual or supernatural or magical ideas. And we take them at, at face value because for some reason there might be something that's constitutive of being human that relates to these kinds of magical structures.
1: Yeah, they're very deeply rooted, very powerful, come very easily. They are incredibly potent for inspiring people and activating people there's some remarkable examples actually you you know you look at the ussr amongst the militant atheists of the you know the bolsheviks and the the communists in the ussr and yet you know in the in the hardship of the second world war and, and what have you the orthodox church was brought back into the fold and you know people were carrying some things that are something like icons of Stalin around and and what what have you and you you know and in these cults of personality whether it be Stalin or Chairman Mao in you know communist China and what have you these as you say these these figures occupy a kind of supernatural status which is weird really given that both Stalin and Mao instituted these you know big anti-superstition you know superstition in quotes dry drives and, and and what have you but as you say, I, I and, and, and I agree. The, the supernatural seems to come to mind whenever we're trying to think about power, and we're envisaging political structures, and we're thinking about leaders and and what have you. Even even in militant atheist regimes, would you believe?
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think that that's <laughs> so. So that's what I mean by like it's sort of a tactic. You know, I mean, you can see like there are lots of clashes. Um, I'm not making a value judgment on this either way. So mm-hmm. for the listeners and for you, uh, just so you know, like you can see like in the ways that like people who are like anti vaccination people are like condemned for looking for solutions. Like there's a lot of anthropology work doing, going on around anti-vax people now to say like, there's a value, like they're, they have some sort of value in their life that is attributed to like, oh, I want to protect my family. Right. um, or you can see like maybe that's too extreme for an example for people to take on without having their sort of knee jerk reaction to it but like you can see people use like alternative medicine of various sorts and the ways that those medicines are like completely uh ridiculed dismissed overregulated in some ways, you know, whereas other pharmaceuticals, if you read Ben Goldacre's great book Bad Pharma, are underregulated, not transparent, all that kind of stuff. And it's just sort of like for me it, it, and the way that it, you know, you point out in this book, there are like all kinds of laws about seeing a psychic or a healer or all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff and what they can say or what they can't say. And you know, it's like that sort of push to get people to relinquish something. Where in upper echelons or, you know, people with power are able to just sort of do it and explore it freely. There's an asymmetry of, like, exploration. And so, you know, for me, that's very frustrating. And it brings yeah. it brings me to, like, w- it's just one of the greatest things about your book, which almost nobody writes about when they write about witchcraft, which are these de-witcher, you know, figures... Um, Anti which was like the Jean Sauvourg. yeah the Fabre yeah. book yeah, yeah that's a that's a great book it's a you know a, a hundred pages or something very mm-hmm. a bit more densely theoretical than than yours so yeah. everybody read his so Th- Thomas's book is longer but much easier to read so <laughs> and much more fun to read but like these figures who um tactically take on the task of well I know. People who are using witchcraft and magic are powerful in some way, actually. So I will prefer the service of using those overlapping tools, at least in some way, to like help people. Now, obviously, some of these people are hoaxsters, um, or you know, and some of them are just bullshit artists. But it's also quite obvious that a lot of them aren't.
1: Yeah, that's the challenge, and I'd and say that's the most controversial controversial. Thing, If you, you could imagine if Richard Dawkins were here and he'd be, you know, his mouth would be on the floor and he'd be kind of a, his, his eyes would be boiling and his face would be red. And he'd, he'd, he'd think that
0: I make sure he was standing outside the door. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, he, he
1: would he would I dare say he would think that all forms of magical belief and magical ideas were harmful to humanity and human culture. And, you know, that goes from the whole range from spiritual healers to just to magical stories, fairy tales you know Richard Dawkins wouldn't want. Presumably, any Lord of the Rings and you know he fables and that kind of stuff. But th- that's the challenge for us. And I, I think it, I don't think we should duck this question. Actually, as people who are interested in the history uh, of magic, is how f- how far does is it an emancipating and a therapeutic and a beneficial force? That's you know, Magical practices and beliefs for humanity and how far are they do they lead to victimization and to to fraud and what have you now I, th- I think to be fair a lot a, a lot a lot of people that study this kind of topic in an academic way will want to sidestep those kind of questions they would see them as tending against being objective and being distant and dispassionate but i I, I think that's mistaken I, I think they're the most imp- Important questions, and uh, and as as you say that there's a huge range, right? You know, you you could think of on the extreme cases of where providing magical services and you know propagating magical ideas and so on is really harmful. Is something like the notion of child witchcraft, Mm. uh, which is an idea that it, it it's it's under-researched i'm afraid you know i mean even even for, for an academic topic it seems to have emerged in the second half of the 20th century in sub-saharan africa and it's the notion that children can be witches or can be possessed can manifest evil powers and they can those powers can emanate out from children and harm their f- families and so on um this kind of idea inspires all sorts of traumatic exorcisms sometimes violence sometimes just traumatic in in other words ac- ac- in other ways across the world now you know that's uh, that's a harmful, that's an example of, you know, really harmful idea. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm quite sort of sympathetic to some of the legislation in um, places like India, all, all around the world, actually, which, which makes it illegal to accuse someone of being a, a witch or possessed in that way. I don't think you should be able to accuse a, a child of being, you know, possessed or whatever. I, I know it's very hard to implement those laws. So th- those are some examples of, you know, where, where magical notions are really harmful. But what about, you know, you know as you say, you go to the other extreme where somebody's got got an ailment you, that's not responding well to um to orthodox medicine you, you know you think about you know think about how many how many of our physical ailments actually have a strong psychological component you, you know loads of people nowadays for instance have problems with sleep or with problems with your gut and all, all, all kinds of things like that and this is where the power of belief can be genuinely helpful but, for people that the 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 placebo effect can be very potent and very very therapeutic and you you can see where you know as as long as as long as people keep taking their medicines and as long as magical practitioners aren't charging the earth that i i I think personally it's a it's a it's a mistake to to in a blanket way attack all forms of magical belief and spiritual healing and and what have you because there's there's clearly many areas where i think that it can be done in a way that that can that can can help people
0: yeah well i think that one of the problems is that we don't have people that can are really good at distinguishing what's what you know and so that creates all chances for like actually everything to go bad in every possible way so like in other words we don't have people who are able to say like well this is bullshit and this is not bullshit like from a standpoint of understanding the magical or alternative stuff. We really, it's mostly we have, uh, like a in the U.S. You'd have the FDA, or you would have other law, like labor laws around like psychics and this sort of stuff. Like saying nope, yeah. you know. But you don't have anybody from the other side like who accepts and whatever, like really invited into the like the conversation in a way that the framework. And structure of the understanding of how those things work is not just being made to measure up to how these other systems of medicine work, right? So it goes terribly in a lot of ways. Like, so I'm thinking of, even though this isn't a healing thing, I'm thinking of the satanic panic, you know, in the U.S. where you had really two things going on, which was you had these completely, like, just batshit stupid, like cases where people were you know like the like a, a, the McMartin preschool trial right where like the there were kids were saying they were ritually abused and one was like the teacher I, th- I think i'm getting this right like the teacher flew or like shoved a butcher knife up my ass and like mm. of course there was like that was in testimony like as as evidence um and like you know, none of the kids could get to really sort of like agree on the details. There was no evidence found all this kind of stuff. And you have all these other cases where people went to jail for that, who are clearly innocent. And yet also like from that time, you can find instances of people who probably were, uh, ritually abused, abducted. Um, like there are certain homes and you know, whatever, where especially young boys were taken and had some of them escaped and talked about it in retrospect. But be- but there's like this weird alternation between like, oh, that was total bullshit or it was, you know, whatever. And it, and so in the meantime, what happens is because nobody can distinguish between the two. I mean, the bullshit was probably was probably much more prevalent, mm. uh, you know, of, of course. But like because people can't distinguish between the two government, state governments, um, local officials, all that start implementing rules and, and also cultural rules about what kind of art you can take in? Does it have this quality? Does it have that, you know, to, is, you can't play Dungeons and Dragons and you can't eat Count Chocula or whatever the fuck, you know, <laughs> like you yeah. can't, you know, Troubling. and then like, and then also regulating and like inspiring fear about like your kids going out, talking to strangers, all that. And it's because there are no D. De- witcher figures, right? Like you don't have people that are taking the phenomenon seriously that are able to sort of distinguish and consult. And it, and it's like, and in fact, they would be seen to be part of like the problem if they were allowed in, both by the witchcraft, hating the people that believe in witchcraft and hate it or believed in the satanic panic weren't scared, because then that person would be satanic to you. And also the people that disbelieve it totally, because they think that that's just more bullshit. But actually, these figures are really important figures.
1: I I, I, I agree with, I think the thrust of what you're saying, which is that we it's probably time for a... A really serious conversation involving a lot of people from esoteric community maybe maybe that's not a defensible term people with esoteric interests and uh, people from faith communities religious communities i should say when you know when we're talking about the most harmful effects of magical beliefs and practices the examples i'm thinking of actually would you know a lot of people would class as religious really I'm, I'm thinking of the more uh, really radically supernatural forms of Pentecostalism, not all forms of Pentecostalism, but certain varieties of Christianity, not just uh, Christ- Christianity as well. You know, I'm not really talking about, you know, sort of white witches who, you know, charge, um, you know, forty, fifty 50 pounds for uh, fortune telling and, um, and what have you. My perception um, is, my estimation, is that the number of people providing spiritual healing uh, whether they're from the churches or or whether they're white witches or others or you know a myriad of myriad of people the number of people providing those kind of services I I think has actually increased certainly in Britain since the 1970s Mm -hmm. Um, uh, it's hard to say exactly it's you know it's very murky area it's sort of legally dubious area there's no overall database so one has to be cautious about this but I think it's increased in Britain I think it's increased everywhere I think it's well certainly in the western world's maybe more widely Um, the challenge for us is to distinguish between those people who are involved in spiritual healing and can do it in a way that empowers people and benefits people and helps people doesn't harm people we've got to be able to find who those people are and then we also need to be able to identify when this really is harmful when it when it's fraudulent when it's costing too far too much money when it's leading to abuse and victimization and so on and that 's why I agree with the thrust of your point. I think when we 're trying to devise legal frameworks for making these distinctions, you need people to contribute from the esoteric scene and from you know from from religious communities and various religious groups and what have you you know there's a There's a whole world of difference for example, between you know, imagine, a, you know, the kind of thing that goes on quietly in many churches in in England now, you know, the, the Church of England, the Anglican Church, weekly there'll probably be a kind of a, a prayer meeting after after service, a healing meeting where people will sit around in, in, you know, in their chairs close together and, you know, maybe lay on hands or pray for somebody that's suffering in the group, you know, someone's got arthritis, something like that, doesn't cost any money, it's just people looking after each other, people wishing each other well, people holding each other in their thoughts, you know, it's... I I think that kind of thing's valuable and I'd push back against the kind of Richard Dawkins type idea that there's no place for anything like that in the modern world. You know, so I I, I, I wouldn't want to stigmatize that at all. You know, I I say good luck to, to people involved in that. So long as, as I say, as long as people keep taking their medicines and doing, you know. Don't worry, Richard
0: Dawkins doesn't listen to the yeah. show. Yeah.
1: But, but on the other hand, you know, if you go to these sort of, you know, kind of churches that you find, you find across Britain, but particularly in London, kind of independent Pentecostal churches where, that are uh, organized around a self defined prophet, for example, self described prophet. In places where they'll diagnose children as being bewitched and possessed, and you know, charge their, fat, you know, sometimes, some, you know, there's all sorts of horrible reasons for this kind of thing. It's, you know, if people, if parents can't come to terms with their children being um, gay or something like that, for instance, you know, th- these kind of ideas, these kind of ideas can come up, and y- poor children can be subjected to an exorcism, and and then the parents charge several hundred pounds for that kind of thing. I think we need to be able to make the distinctions where that that kind of latter. Activity is, you know, that that sort of stuff shouldn't be going on anymore. We need to be more aware of this. We need to, you know, we need to stop this kind of stop that this kind of thing happening. Yeah.
0: Well, I think it, we're we're just unequipped right now because we've gone so intensely to this side of like dismissing these magical phenomena, right? So like, you have this uh something you wrote in the book. You know, for people learned. Learned in witchcraft, seemingly innocuous terrains could be nerve-wracking, threatening, even terrifying, right? Now, in the context of what you're talking about is, you know, is, is fear, but actually what I pulled from that, I thought it was a great line, because I thought well, this one points to me, like, to sort of defining witchcraft as a way of reading the terrain. Like it's Mm. actually a language through which we see our surroundings. And so it's something, it's a language that we should probably become a little more fluent in, like in general, like, can I see, you know, the spiritual qualities of what's around me? Can I see the sort of merits and who, who leads me there? Who's going to teach me that language? It's not an easy question. I mean, Look, one one of the difficult things is some of the people that whose spiritual beliefs we take the most seriously are the worst people, you know, to, like, tell us. Like, would anybody doubt the sort of belief of the people that, de- you know, decapitated and dismembered that kid that you brought up in the book? They found, mm. like, this body yeah. floating there, uh, probably for ritual purposes. And it's like... Those people fucking believe it, you know. Like, yeah. if not the people enough that did to kill it, someone, yeah. yeah, like then the, yes, exactly, and that happens often enough, right? You can't go to them for you can't go to them for the messaging because even if they could tell you how all the magical stuff works, like some of the other people you mentioned in the book who are like, well, just if you, if you want to deal with this marital problem, just kill your husband, you know, and here's how to do it by stepping on his corns or whatever mm. it was, you know, like you don't want to go to those people because even if they could give you the information, it's refracted through a distorted, immoral, unethical lens. So it's kind of like finding the people that actually present a picture of it. Now one of the, that, that's worthwhile, one of the people you bring up in the book that I think is a great example of this would be Dion Fortune, yeah. right? For all of her sort of problems and especially being a person of her time or whatever, um, you know, I think she's a great example of somebody that we might turn to just for some Magical literacy in a sense, you know, um, there are other people I think like Rudolf Steiner or Um, I think, you know, even people who are maybe a little more problematic like Osho or Aleister Crowley or Gurdjieff or some of these figures I think That are whose works are easily accessible. There's a lot more sort of underground ones But mm. it's good to just sort of like read it and take it seriously as a sort of theoretical framework for how to see the world
1: it can make the way you look at the world much richer, much more exciting, much more I know, elevating, almost. I, I, li- I like the point you were driving at, uh, that when you look around at the landscape, if we understand the folklore and the history of, of, of magic, we can understand that stories that are attached to particular places, and it's, it's very, you know, it's enchanting is the word, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the enchantment side of, of of magic is so valuable and so wonderful. I mean, there's there's, there's a lot of people doing amazing things. Uh with with this now there's uh, there's a there's a there's a a, a Twitter account called um, Hookland for instance which is about I an, love Hookland yeah, yeah yeah so do I it's about an a, you know an imaginary uh, county in you know something like Essex in the uh, <laughs> in the in the east of of England and you know you're thinking about you know the the, the black dogs the cunning folk the the witches the the ghosts the haunted landscape. It, it makes it wonderful to go for a walk, right? You know, if you go for, you know, you know, I don't know if you uh, if you get out into the Irish countryside much, uh, Connor, but you know, when you see a, a fairy fort or where, when you see, a, a, you know, a fairy tree, a rowan tree, something something like that, if you know something about the folklore and the, the history of the magic, it just it, it just allows you to have a wider range of thoughts, and and there's there's something very exciting, very beautiful, and very poetic about this. In, in fact, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of the Romantic poets, particularly, were in, inspired by magical ideas. Um, you know, Robert Robert Burns thought that. You know, it's been Burns Night recently, as we record this. Thought that superstition—that uh, was that was his his, his term—was a great source of inspiration for poetry. William, you know, before we started recording this podcast listeners we were talking about william wordsworth and he's it reciting
0: wordsworth in yeah fact.
1: i was reciting it was
0: very romantic
1: <laughs> there's a poem called the song for the spinning wheel uh and the subtitle of that poem is an old Westmoreland belief and it's do you want to recite it now yeah i'll probably get it wrong now okay i'll
0: <laughs> he, do you want to finish your point and then recite it
1: it's, it's, it's about how magical beliefs can inspire wonderful stories and wonderful poetry, and it's underlining the, you know, the, the value of enchanted ways of thinking. This is the song for The Spinning Wheel by William Wordsworth. Swiftly turn the murmuring wheel, night has brought the welcome hour, when the weary fingers feel, help as if from fairy power. Dewy night overshades the ground, turn the swift wheel round and round. Now beneath the starry sky, couch the widely scattered sheep. Ply the pleasant labour ply, for the spindle while they sleep. Runs with speed more smooth and fine, gathering up a trustier line. Short-lived likings may be bred, by a glance from fickle eyes. But true love is like the thread which the kindly wool supplies. When the flocks are all at rest, sleeping on the mountain's breast. Yeah, thank you. That was great. Thanks. That that poem is basically about an idea that was found when you know when Wordsworth was writing in the late 1700s in the northwest of England. That at night, when the moon came out at certain times, if you were you know you imagine you're in your rural cottage and you're at work at the spinning wheel, you know you've got to get this done. You've you've got to produce these products, produce this thread. You know you you need you need these resources ultimately to feed your family. That if you were working desperately hard late at night, sometimes the fairies would assist you and it's, it's quite a nice and, and encouraging idea then, you know there's some wonderful you know think of all the wonderful literature and poetry that, that comes out of m- magical or supernatural ideas Thomas Hardy wrote so many wonderful poems that are based on you know the idea of ghosts for example or, or short stories and, you know I love that Thomas Hardy story the withered arms about you know about witchcraft and, and, and what have you this, this is why I've got this is why i don't have any truck with the kind of extreme new atheist position which is against all forms of enchanted thinking it, because I, I think that a lot of it's really valuable i think what we actually do, need to do here and that the harder task is you know as you were driving out earlier on is making these distinctions and in a discerning way identify when magic's inspiring fraud and victimization and get rid of that not not get rid of the the whole thing and what, what I think's happened basically across the Western world, maybe across much of the world, in fact, since the 70s, is there's been a huge resurgence in all forms of enchantment and magic, some of them for good and some of them for bad.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, one of the, one of the big problems of the sort of new atheist bro, like, take... Has always been you know the way it really relies on colonialism to get its you know point across, which is like well basically every culture ever in time, including now, except you know this very narrow European and uh, American you know pocket of atheism, is completely stupid right mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and completely wrong, but something that 's again interesting about your book, um, which obviously i 'm urging people to read. Um well, thank you. Yeah, well, and it's funny because the, <laughs> you make these declarative statements and then you kind of like sweep them away as you go yeah. along. So if people get sort of like hit a declarative statement and get frustrated by it, keep going because, like, he always complicates it. And it was something that was very surprising. It's, like, a little trick you do in your writing style, which is very interesting.
1: Oh, I try, but, friends. You okay. know how <laughs> difficult it is. <laughs> but,
0: but, no, like, I, I really I really like it. Because also, like, some people in my audience, like, we're talking a lot about this sort of atheist, but, like, mm. some people in my audience will think you're not, like, witchy enough, yeah. you know? So, like, I'm talking to them when I, I say that. But anyway, I want to say, like, one of the great things about your book is that you bring in the colonies, you know, you know, and colonization and how that created this exchange of religious and spiritual tactics, strategies, ideas, all that kind of stuff too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, rather than take that Richard Dawkins line, okay, we keep bringing him up, I guess we're in (laughs) London right now. So it's just inevitable that we might be thinking of his annoying voice. Um, is that, you know, like the, You know, rather than just saying like, well, those people are stupid, witchcraft is stupid, whatever. Um, But actually, no, like there was something of value happening. And that exchange, that cross-cultural exchange, maybe exchange isn't a fair word, maybe extraction, exploitation, whatever you want to say. But That exchange was valuable, you know, and and influencing and gave something and forever changed, actually, um, forever changed British culture.
1: Yeah, the history of colonialism looks very different when you start looking at these subtle and often unremarked upon topics like attitudes to witchcraft, curses, spiritual forces, ghosts and what have you. Listeners who've looked a little bit at the history of empire will know that although colonialism's you know is a very hard-nosed and sort of exploitative process, it's often accompanied by rationalising ideology. And in the, in European colonialism, this was often called the civilising mission. So to justify, you know, taking over the government of foreign countries or exporting settler colonialism or you know taking the resources or, or whatever, many colonialists claimed that they were providing civilization you know they were bringing a parliamentary system they were bringing christianity they were bringing reason to the in, in quotes superstitious and misguided peoples of the wor- of the world so, you know so there's all this sort of high-minded very secular well very anti-magical at any rate um rhetoric but in, in reality the british people that went out to the colonies during the 1700s 1800s early 1900s they, they went out there with these kind of chauvinistic and very superior type attitudes but when they actually got there they found that these ideas were actually impossible to sustain and you know you you start to watch certain religious or spiritual practices you, you maybe listen if you be begin to build up a relationship with the local people you know employ them on your farm or something like that and they tell you local ghost stories, local stories about witches, these kind of things start to affect you even if you don't want them to. Um, Ultimately, many British uh, colonists and colonialists ended up believing, half believing, in many of the, in quotes, superstitious and erroneous ideas of the population. They ended up being Really deeply touched by these ideas, and you know that fed back into the um, you know the magical traditions in Britain. Obviously, it effect, you know affected movements like theosophy, and in in a slightly more complex way, I, su- I suppose it you know it informed the creation of that branch of, uh, of of magic that's known as Western esotericism. You know, it was defined in in part against. Uh, you know, Know, the influence of uh, non non western magic but you, you you I think you'd be you'd be surprised at, uh, at how well how the civilizing mission and the the rhetoric of the civilizing mission it didn't really stand up to reality
0: well right it couldn't withstand also, it just could not withstand the magic that was present so speaking of which um you know a big part of my the research that i'm about to embark on uh, later this year is about you know talking to people who have had sort of maybe i would say shattering you know experiences with the real when they see spiritual entities of yep. some sort and also the ways that those people are stigmatized um for claiming and reporting that they see things or whatever ghosts fairies et cetera so you are kind of one of those people, whether you, you know, like, I mean, maybe it wasn't shattering, but it was gradual, right? Like, I've heard you say, like, you mm. know, as I went through writing this book, it did sort of seep in, you know? It did. So yeah. um, let's talk about that. Okay. Not that you're my research subject, but <laughs> <laughs> but let's discuss it a little bit.
1: Well, I better not go into the sort of full biography of why I'm interested in the history of witchcraft why, and magic. Why not? Well... I dare say some of it can be <laughs> traced back to my childhood. You know, I, I love my stories of witchcraft and magic when I was a, a little lad and there's, a, the, you know, my dad's still got the old books, the old you know, witchcraft story books that uh-huh. we used to read when I was I was a little boy. And I was looking through some at Christmas actually when I went I went back home and I you know I hadn't looked at this thing for oh it must have been 30 years or something and I couldn't believe that I, I looked at it and I could I could remember every word every. Do picture. you remember where it is? It's it, it it was it was a little book that was I'm afraid it was a book of witches that was published by uh, by Sainsbury's the supermarket. <laughs> so it's, it's not it's not a particularly uh, esteemed uh, uh. piece of literature I'm afraid, but it made a great it's impression great. on me. Sure. I, you know, I, I don't know. Oh,
0: you know, I I like, wouldn't expect you to be reading, you know, religion and the decline of magic when no, exa- you exa- like Exactly, i I
1: thought that wasn't happening. <laughs> uh, you know, I like. I, 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 I know she had a sort of bit of a, a feel for kind of good luck charms and things. I'm, I'm just talking when I was, you know, really young, like you know, sort of six or, or eight years old, and that that stuff I suppose I forgot about that really as I became you know as I got a bit older and became a teenager and what have you went away to study history at university and I thought of myself as a complete rationalist you know 100% rationalist in the sense that I didn't think there were any supernatural powers at all thought the notion of the supernatural was um, was incoherent and I started studying the history of witchcraft in Victorian Britain the history of folk magic and, and what have you from that perspective that this is a you know this is a quite a, a strange side of Victorian life a side of Victorian life that I hadn't really encountered before in the books and the history courses that I'd taken on the 19th century which were m- mostly about political reform and the growth of towns and demography and,
0: yeah. and not to derail you but what, do, but wh- why mm. like why did you think like can you look back on that and think like this is why i was drawn to it or can you get into that it, feeling
1: yes i i can i can remember i remember uh, when i first became interested in the topic it was in the summer holiday of uh, my second year at university and i was having to think about what i was going to write my undergraduate dissertation on i wanted to do something about the victorian period and i was was reading a diary written by a clergyman called Francis Kilvert, who was based on the Welsh border near Hay- on White in the um, 1870s. And in this diary, I expected to read all sorts of things about the crisis of faith and intellectual disputes, you know, how, how, how valid is the traditional conception of the Bible in light of German biblical criticism and um, Darwinian evolution and, and what have you. But instead, in this this diary by Francis, Francis Kilvert, there are lots of descriptions of the conversations and encounters he'd had with his parishioners on the Welsh border, with people who, for example, had seen the spirit or the apparition of their friends or their family members on the road. And then it had later transpired that the person who they'd seen the apparition of, that person had died at that very moment. Yeah, these kind of stories, or stories about good luck charms, or stories, again, about people who believe they were bewitched and the sometimes gruesome things they did to try and get rid of the curse. All this stuff was, it, kind of, it was absolutely astonishing and a revelation to me because I'd seen the Victorians as very hard-nosed, very scientific, very s- serious, very disapproving, and it, it just seemed like a, a totally different side of Victorian life. That was what first got me interested in in the topic i didn't really hadn't really you know read much about this kind of dimension of victorian social history but i I can as i continued studying this topic as you said it did it did kind of seep into me it did affect me and i must admit my own attitudes changed without me wanting them to actually I, i i don't think you can you know you you can really go around you know for years listening to stories about about witchcraft and witches you know black witches, grey witches, white witches about people who've experienced terrible misfortunes that they didn't feel could be explained in any other way than curses I don't think you can study those things without being affected by it and it the eeriness of it, the almost the scariness of it really began to make a, a greater impression of me and and now I'd, I suppose I probably describe myself as something like a, like a 97% sceptic or something like that um you know the, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know <laughs> you know <laughs> I, I, what what i say about you yeah. know what i say about myself and what i actually am and and yeah. you know like with most people are not are not really going to match up that you know look i can remember going down to the museum of witchcraft and magic and one of the uh, one of the people working there one of the curators kindly allowed me to look in the um, in the ex um, in the box of, of poppets of what you might call voodoo dolls of the kind of things that were put in the museum that were supposed to exemplify how people try to harm other people using even magic. And she told me this story about these objects. She said, you know, we sometimes learn them out to other museums, but whenever we do, yeah. something always happens. You put them in the box and the person has an accident. She said, one guy, curator, he fell off his bike into a river or mm-hmm. something. And sometimes if you, you know, if you open... Open the lid of this box. The power comes out, and in the past, we like to line up the the puppets for evil with the puppets for good, so the forces counteract each other. You know, they had all these stories, and you know, in my rational, you know, in some ways, in you know, in my formal reasoning, I think you know that's impossible. But I must admit, I did have after I'd heard those stories, I had a, I had a really quite a frightening dream in the old Victorian hotel in Boscastle, where this museum is on the North Cornish coast. You know, I sort of this terrible, it you know, really stayed with me. This dream of a bloody heart being impaled with pins and you know shadow wow. sweeping over so, so what i'm trying to say is that this stuff really does so affect just a normal you. dream for you okay. yeah exactly <laughs> just a, just a everyday night terrors really you know just a jolly thing waking up you know no, i didn't wake up screaming but it was very it was what well, i woke up with a start and just just an example really of how this kind of stuff has affected me i would i'm i'm not as i'm i'm well i'm not dis. I hope I've made it clear in some of the remarks already. I'm not. Um, I'm not dismissive of uh, of all magic. I think you know. I think magic is extremely powerful. If you know, from a from a sort of certainly from a psychological point of view, I don't think it's all negative. And I I think I, I was when I started looking at this, I was far too dismissive. And I, another thing I didn't really appreciate was how artful the practice of magic can be and often is how difficult it is to do it well to carry off being you know a white witch a magical practitioner that's really hard you know you need a certain charisma you need a certain practice you need you need an intuition you need to click with people it's very very difficult as well as being a potentially powerful force and because so much academic history um, so much history about about magic is written from a, a very strongly sceptical perspective. I think these aspects of magic, the artfulness of it and the psychological power and potency of it tend to get obscured, downplayed, sometimes not mentioned at all.
0: Yeah, okay. Well, I. I mean, I... Yeah, I love that, like just talking about the sort of art and difficulty and challenges of doing all that stuff well. I think... You know, like, huh, I think I would have pushed a little bit more on, the, on your own experience, probably because it's something that, well, it's something that's just very interesting to me, the sort of change in someone's contours of belief or understanding how the world works or whatever. But so, you know... It seems that there's probably... I, I'm wondering, you know, so you had this positive experience when you were a kid in a way, like this yeah. enthralling sort of thing. And then you have this, like, kind of, like, fearful, like, what the fuck, you know, when you go to the museum, Just right?
1: On the fringes of the scarier side of... Right. ...of, of witchcraft and magic, but only at the fringes. Yeah. But, you know.
0: So, and... Uh, and I'm wondering if there's still sort of a positive thing in, now in your life. I mean, well, there's a book, you know, right? But, yeah. uh, but I mean, like, is there a way in which you, uh, I can, well, I guess that might just be it. Like, maybe it's just like the constant interest in this topic. Oh, I, like, th-
1: I think there are quite a few positive yeah. ways, that, uh, actually. In in many ways, my, the way I approach magic is through, obviously, through researching and writing about it. So I can kind of explain, if my experience of magic comes vicariously and through the history um, so I can sort of enjoy it really in that way and in, in, in quite an enchanting way but it's not the only way that I uh, I suppose magical ideas uh, figure in my life as I was saying earlier on when I was talking about you know poetry and stories and things you know I, I absolutely love uh, magical stories and Poems and films and, you know, it's, it's it, it, you know, dare I say, computer games and that, that kind of thing. It's, it's, a, it's a great theme. It's something I love, something I really enjoy. I also had, um, I've got a little six-month-old uh, baby daughter now. And, you know, it's quite a sort of seminal e- experience, obviously, having your, your, your first child. And certain ideas relating to luck and magic kind of came into play there, really. And I found them to be quite comforting and quite... A, sort of assuring really Uh, you know to to be totally candid about it as I say you know I'm according to my own claims I'm a complete skeptic or 97% skeptic but when we were waiting for my uh, little daughter to be bought my girlfriend and I we we bought a pram and you and your listeners you might have heard of that old superstition that you should never have the pram in your house Mm. you know because it's it's too presumptuous it can make make Mm. bad things happen and well, Helen, my girlfriend, would have been fine about having it in that house, but I must admit, I, I, I wasn't. And uh, Yeah, I, I just thought, well, just in case, you know, I'd just feel a little bit better if we, you know, can we send it to your parents instead? And the, tr- the truth is, you know, I've got, you know, I've observed a few, you know, you might call them superstitions or uh, practices about, that relate to good luck like that. I've, you know, got a few good luck charms up around round the house I, I don't want to you know overstate this to, but just a little bit you've got a little silver coin underneath Mary's cribs uh, perhaps I should stop with the uh, the self revel- revelations now but but the, <laughs> this right. kind of stuff was you know, it's, you know it's a very worrying time and you've got you know one well, thing about having a little daughter's impressed upon me is the is, is really the um, fragility and the preciousness of of life and it did make me feel a bit better observing this kind of thing it, it it you know i don't think it I don't think it did any any harm uh, and it 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 gave me a, a little bit of comfort and, and and peace so there are lots of ways you can enjoy enjoy magic you know I love looking at the the history of magic people's experiences good and bad I think I think it's got an incredible history in the modern period that people ought to look at. I love the stories I love the the movies and the computer games and and there's also something slightly comforting about you know, some of these lower level superstitions as well.
0: Yeah, Yeah, so I think, yeah, I guess I would just sort of frame that as like maybe a bit of what I was saying before is that you're now sort of reading the terrain of your life with witchcraft a little bit more, you know, and it's like when you, you know, one of the most, I think, profound things that happens in our lives is when we learn how to read because, you know, you think it's like you have just like symbols around you all the time and someone teaches you how to sort of correlate them, and suddenly meaning and new kinds of meaning, a meaning that wasn't available, becomes available to you, and you can't unsee it ever again. Like, I can't look at signs and not be able to read them, you Mm know. Um, And so suddenly you're surrounded by a world that's populated with a completely new kind of uh, uh, valence or something, that is a completely new feel and layer. And I think once you learn enough about magic and witchcraft, you... You, words start to pop, sort of new word, new meanings start to pop out and you can't return. And so it's the, it really is the development of a different sort of organ or a new kind of consciousness. And it, it, it's there's no use in trying to go back, you know, it's there. It's, yeah.
1: it's quite a poetical way of thinking. You know, you can't ignore how spells and poetry have an awful lot in common. <laughs> you know, it's very condensed writing you know very vivid and you know think of the rhymes think think of think of the verse in in a subtle way i wonder if the first rhymes and the first verses were they spells or were they or were they poems and songs i bet they were i bet there were spells I, I i conjecture this you know the first the first art you know the cave art one interpretation of that and and, and one that i'm uh, persuaded by though i'm not adamant about it is that it was a form of of, of hunting magic of kind of you know the People went, tens of thousands of years ago, went deep underground with flickering torches and these skilled people painted the the herds on the caves. So, you know, you think that the history of literature, history of song, you know, it goes back to, you know, it's rooted in the history of magic, the history of art, it's in the history of magic. It's something... You know, don't don't be like me when I first s- studied this and underestimate uh, underestimating the whole topic. I'm sure your listeners aren't like that at all. But uh. <laughs> well,
0: so I mean, I mean, I think that that's just it. It's like, you know, I so I recorded another episode today. We are talking about the sex and sexuality mostly, and just, you know, um, and so like I think that these histories, like these things that are embedded and constitutive of the human experience, like you better better to investigate them and think seriously about them, because you'll always be in their sway no matter what. So you might as well sort of learn about their elements a bit and and, and their presence, you know? Shh.
1: Uh, one thing I uh, wanted to bring up with you, actually, Connor, was, you know, given that you're engaged on a PhD thesis looking at people's supernatural encounters in contemporary Ireland, is the difficulties in actually finding out what people experience and what people think about okay. magic it's a very hard topic to investigate partly because as you uh, we've been saying it's it's stigmatized it's sidelined it's you know it's controversial it's it's left field but also something that i came across a lot in the modern history of witchcraft you know when i'm saying modern history i should just say i mean from the sort of 1800s to now was that many of the people who believe most sincerely in that evil powers were operating in this world they had this kind of uncanny feeling that if you spoke about (laughs) them openly and plainly it was a dangerous thing to do it was a silly it's a crazy thing to do because it'd almost be more likely to tempt fate to make bad things happen to annoy maybe even to annoy the witches with their super powerful healing hearing excuse me so they'll kind of target you what i'm trying to say is that there are all sorts of challenges to studying the history of magic it's a topic that's very secretive basically and very obscured and have you come up against that have you come up with sort of any strategies for
0: Yeah, yeah i mean again it is like sex in that way right like people are afraid of evoking the thing that you know evoking a sexual atmosphere by talking about sex so people are afraid of evoking a kind of uh occult or supernatural presence by talking about it and yeah i mean a big part of the idea for my PhD came from talking to my friend Greg Newkirk who has been on the show he's a paranormal investigator he and his wife uh, Dana and um, he was telling me about a, an email that someone had sent him we were just having a just regular conversation you know I wasn't really talking about the PhD we used to, you know as I hadn't developed what it was going to be about yet and he was just telling me about some guy who sent him a letter that was like uh, you know I have a poltergeist in my house. I didn't know who else to go to. You guys are the only ones that I thought I could talk to about it. I'd be ridiculed if I told anybody else. I don't know what's happening. Please help me. And, like, as he read it, I was like, oh, my God. Like, as someone who talks and thinks about sex publicly all the time, this is the exact same kind of letter I get constantly, Greg. Mm -hmm. It's like, but it's about sexual acts, sexual desires, you know, um, like a, a fantasy or something that had happened or, you know, something that somebody wanted to do. And, um you know and i just thought there's so much there so that that's the sort of beginning of the answer which is like i know some of the contours of like talking about these difficult things and mm. sort of how to get under them but uh, there's a particular Like, I've been thinking about this with getting like ethics approval, like from the university, which is like so frustrating because if I were just writing a nonfiction book, I wouldn't have to go through any of this bullshit. But for some reason, like for the university to protect itself, I have to, you know, which is like, you know, I might go in and be like, look, I'm going to do some kind of like ritual to like keep us safe here because I do know some rituals like that that I think are actually effective. And even if they weren't, they would be in terms of your. You know, belief placebo effect. Yeah. Now, <laughs> the interesting thing is, if I have to present that, I, I like, I can't really present it to the university. See, because what my concern would be is, like, <laughs> if I'm going to sit down and talk with someone about their paranormal encounter, and I'm going to do, like, I don't know, say something very simple like the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram you know or something like this or like a brockery mm. we didn't even talk about brockery i don't know if you know anything about that but it's pennsylvania dutch magic but um some sort of like cleansing ritual or whatever before we talk about it like for the university like i feel like they would say well you can't do that but for them to say you can't do that would mean in some weird way that they would have to take the phenomena that the person was reporting to me seriously because the concern would be like, well, that might not work and you might actually end up like fucking the person up because the ghost will show up again or like that person's curse will like come up again. So it's like a very tricky sort of thing, but that would be my way of actually talking to people is like, look, I don't know if this works a hundred percent of the time, but I'm going to do this ritual now like if you're too afraid to talk about it but there might be people who are resistant even to the ritual so in other words i'd be bringing a sort of de-witching tactic along with me yeah. to the field work but it, it there might be people that are even resistant to that and that requires a different kind of
1: you'd have to you'd have to be able to puzzle out how your de-witching how your behavior kind of changed their response or informed <laughs> that's their, a
0: whole thing as their, well their
1: response i think you could do it it's, it's just challenging it, it I feel your pain here. I, you know, I am concerned, very concerned about universities being totally risk-averse. And y- your method you've described, it, it appeals to me in many ways because it, it sounds, it's, it's really reminiscent of the method employed by the author of probably my um, favourite book on witchcraft, which is, we've mentioned her already, the French anthropologist Jean-Favre Sarda her first book, which when it was translated to into English was called Deadly Words, Witchcraft in the Bocage. It's about And now it's called the witch and anti-witch is that what it's called now. That yeah that's the la- the latest The oh, latest so this, book is called is, the anti-witch. This is a previous. One. Yes. Oh, it's, okay. it's well, a, I it was read a, that it one. was okay. it's absolutely amazing. It, it was a book that was published in English first in 1980 by Cambridge University Press and it's a really wonderful translation by a lady called Catherine Cullen. It Jean Favresada went out she's an anthropologist that trained on um, and had done work on I think it was on symbolic violence in North Africa then she decided for a next project that actually she'd like to study witchcraft but without having to learn a difficult foreign language and so she went to study the witchcraft beliefs of the farmers predominantly in Normandy in northern France in a very rural region in the 19, late 1960s and while she was there she in a much more extreme way than what happened to me, you know, she was listening to all these witchcraft stories, and the people who eventually told her the stories were saying, you know, I don't know how you can listen to this sort of stuff. You know, hasn't something happened to you? Well, in the end, she decided. This anthropologist, Jean Favre-Sada, she concluded that, in fact, she herself had been bewitched, perhaps as a result of talking in a kind of cavalier and overly open way about these dark powers. Ultimately, she was employed as an assistant to a medium who was providing counter witchcraft therapies. And basically, by getting so intimately involved in the culture of witchcraft and counter witchcraft in uh, Normandy, rather than being a kind of distant, objective step back um, ethnographer who'd step back, by being intimately involved in it in a very personal way, she was really able to kind of convey the color, the particular phrases the way people talked about it the feelings you know the kind of encounters people had it 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 ultimately made for a very a very rich and revealing account and I would it sounds like you'd be doing something you know with parallels and you could imagine it would you know maybe you could justify it to the university by saying that something like this method has Uh, been employed before albeit it's been employed very controversially you'd also have to say that you're going to I would imagine you're going to have to say you know, you're know you going to comply completely with the law so presumably, I don't know what the law is in the Republic of Ireland in relation to the selling of magical services I'd imagine it's quite similar so in fact it'll be the same as in the UK at the moment because there's European Union uh, commercial practices legislation and it, it would involve some sort of disclaimers mm. basically maybe if you could say both that this technique this method has been used before um, so you'll be just you'll be kind of basing your method on what's been done before in the field and you'll be fully complying with the law you might Uh, be able to make a case for it I'm not saying you'll succeed
0: no that's great no uh, that's a great that's first of all thank you that's so helpful mm -hmm. second of all I just realized that since Brexit day is tomorrow that like you might actually have an opportunity to affect policy around witchcraft laws in this country uh, in a couple days if you ever wanted to like consult or like you actually did want to enact political change um, so that's your responsibility now. Take care of that. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, so that's that's great. Yeah, so for, I need to read that book. I mean, I read the other one and, and really did enjoy it. But um, yeah, I mean, I think the other thing I would just add is like most people do want to talk about supernatural experiences if they haven't had long-term serious ones yeah. right so everybody's got a ghost story or yeah. like in ireland there might be some fairy stories or whatever and people are very open about them but when they're recurring that's when it becomes i think a little harder to get people to talk about them mm-hmm. because it's like a one-off thing everybody's got that you know even if it's just and 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 the very interesting thing i find is like when i talk to people first they say no And then I'm like, nothing. Like, even, like, you were thinking of a song and it came on the radio. And they're like, oh, well, there was a one time I saw a glowing orb, you know? (laughs) It's just, like, they'll jump over, like, to the most, you know, extreme thing. But they deny it, and then they, like, will tell me. Or they'll tell me that it happened to somebody they knew, but somehow they were involved or whatever. And that's been very interesting. Like, and that's just all preliminary. It's not going to be in my data or whatever. But just from talking, especially to cab drivers, is who I've talked to the most about it. But, um, uh, But I think, like... It is the matter of finding the people who speak about it or who have had multiple experiences. And so one of the things I want to do is also just find people who are doing uh, paranormal investigators in Ireland and have them sort of lead me to the people that have, you know, had these multiple experiences or sites like... um, there's a house not too far from where I live in Dublin that has been on the market for a long time that the owners can't sell because it's been on the market for like five years or something because people have said it's haunted, you know, and everybody in the community knows it. So when people come to look, they're like, Oh, you're checking out the haunted house, you know, and then nobody wants it. Right. So like that kind of stigmatized, it's actually in the U S well, actually everywhere it's called, it's literally called stigmatized property. Yeah. There's no law about it in Ireland In the U S in New York there's a it's referred to in a funny way as the Ghostbuster law, where you actually have to disclose to tenants if a place is known to be haunted. Wow, I didn't know that. Not because amazing. it accepts the reality of ghosts, but it yeah. accepts the reality of the stigma around ghosts. You know, and so like I think these stigmatized properties, like that, might be another way to sort of go about people that have had sort of intense, repeated experiences. I That's mean, then, an
1: amazing case actually. That one. I mean, there were lots of uh, cases like that were reported in the 19th century. That. the kind of well-heeled paranormal investigators of that time, you know, paranormal strictly speaking, it's anachronistic to use the term paranormal, yeah, which is yeah. a 20th century term, but yeah. they were, um, you know, Psychical Investigators, Society of psychics. Yeah, you know, they came across a lot of stuff like that, you know, houses that couldn't be rented out, but it really does speak to the sincerity and the seriousness of these ideas that in somewhere like Ireland, which, you know, like, unfortunately, like, you know, in Dublin, particularly like London or something, where house prices are so astronomically high that, you know, you can't sell uh, <laughs> sell a property. That is, that is, that's really serious. You might also consider interviewing spiritual healers of various sorts So yeah. um yeah i don't know if you could you might be able to do that anonymously as well you know that could because they they might be worried about what whether how far their work contradicts the terms of the the law or not but one would imagine that not not only um catholic priests but also various other types of spiritual healers would be approached by people who've had yeah. seen
0: or yeah, yeah yeah there's also a whole fairy faith thing in northern ireland there's a or not northern ireland but um yeah actually no northern ireland as opposed to north of ireland yeah. meaning like in donegal and that sort of thing where um and there was a an ethnographic book called running with the fairies about that which is actually quite good and one of the very the problem is like unlike witchcraft there's very little written from any sort of academic or scholarly perspective about encounters with spiritual beings in Western cultures. Like mm-hmm. there's just really isn't much like, um, there's plenty written about witchcraft and other cultures. Right. So that yep. like, and, but as soon as like you bring it home, it becomes very difficult. So now there's not a lot of like, at all even taking seriously the reality of these spiritual beings even in other cultures much less when you bring it That's true. home or like so it's very it, it's it's sort of a tricky thing and i i mean but i love that i love being the one that you know like the one i don't mean the one but i mean like i love being somebody that doesn't have to follow a, a map you know so i have to sort of cut my own yeah, there's path a lot, there's it's a, lot of
1: a of nice. scope for work to be done here but I, I i agree with you your point um that i think particularly with the the literature on the witch trials in the awkwardly called early modern period, or as normal people would call it, the Tudor-Stuart and Stewart period, I, th- I think a lot of the writing on that, you know, in the background of it, there's this sort of implicit idea that uh, this implicit notion that it's, it's all very strange, it's all very weird, and I, and I think the strangeness of witchcraft in the past and in the non-Western world is is overemphasized yeah. in in most accounts of that that subject in fact m- you know many of the, the the ideas and the and the notions of tropes and the themes that you'd find in witchcraft and that are allegedly strange in the early modern period and in the non-western world you actually find in uh, in the modern world as as well you, you know totally, sexual yeah. powers of alleged witches and all, all sorts of things you know well i like mean that. the whole new Familiars age movement and, and that kind of like
0: thing. all this, it's just like yeah totally i mean it's a very like it, it's really interesting like where we leave the gaps. Actually, I know it was something I wanted to talk to you about. I mean, we've got to wrap it up, but like the, you know, you did, um, you didn't really go into world war two very much no, in the book, I which I found <laughs> very interesting. Cause that's the time when people talk a lot about, uh, witchcraft and how like, witches gathered to fight the Nazis and all this yeah. kind of interesting stuff. And, and that certainly would have been like a D de- like a mass dewitching, you know, like, because obviously like the, well, some of the Nazis, not all of them, but some of them were invested in, you know, the occult and all that. And so the idea that you would have like groups of magicians and occultists getting together to participate yeah, the magical in that battle effort, for Britain. Y- yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's like, I mean, a lot of that is like been, some of it's been debunked, you know, it's like, yeah. but, but, but some of it's clearly real. I mean, it, you know, this wasn't in Britain, but, you know, in uh, Germany, the and and Austria, like the people that became the Nazis, were constantly attacking um, anthroposophists like Rudolf Steiner and the anthropos- anthroposophical society before, you know, World War Two, like and around, and they burned down the building that he built and. Uh, I think there's pretty credible evidence that they killed him. But then, like, a lot of the anthroposophists after he died were smuggling, smuggling, uh, helping, you know, Jewish people escape, Mm. you know, past the – I can't believe they were smuggling Jewish people. But do you know what I mean? Like, helping people escape from the Nazis. And um, then the people who were in the anthroposophical society were, like, sent to camps and, you know, and – and Hans and Sophie Scholl resisted you know, using occult principles in this like, group called the White Rose that they were part of. And so I think like, it's really interesting, like the governmental tensions with certain, between certain groups. You can see certain kinds of occult groups as being kind of cultural de in a way um, when they take that kind of political action. You know? And I, you didn't write about that that much, but maybe it was just too much to take on at that point.
1: I think this sounds like uh, an important addition for the uh, second edition. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, you know, the, I've, I'm keeping a list of, of things that I can add into the book. The appalling and terrible truth is that I've been researching this topic now for 15 years and it took me five <laughs> and years. And you Connor
0: are the asshole who's saying it's still yeah, not enough. I've not covered yeah. everything, <laughs> eh? is that what you're saying? Uh,
1: it took me five years to write this. I think we got to the point really where I've been talking about how I've been doing this for so long. My poor long-suffering friends and family Believed I was a fantasist, you know. I wasn't somebody that was really writing a book, or this was a book that was never going to be done. He hasn't got a publishing deal. This is just, you know, this is somebody that's got a crazy delusion. There, there's some, there's some very interesting stuff actually about, you know, about work. People who are trying to defend Britain magically in the Second World War. As you say, there some some of it's been debunked. A, a little extra addition for the book, but but I must I must say for for listeners, if you'll forgive the uh, shameless self promotion because britain does touch on and does in fact explore all sorts of different manifestations and iterations of beliefs in the dark type of witchcraft and you know folk magic countryside um the towns and you know highbrow various types of occultism as well so i think you'll find a lot here but but not absolutely everything I must well admit.
0: i the only reason i was pulling on it at all is because you mentioned Dion fortune yeah. and she was part of that yeah effort you know right but i think um you go into great length with her, actually, and some other figures. You go into great length with who I hadn't heard of. This Scottish, uh, oh, the
1: Warlock of Wartland, uh, yes, am- Alexander Henderson, amazing. Yeah. Everybody just—that's
0: one of my favorite parts. He's like the—he's nice. ki- like the kind of person I want to be, I think. But um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, the book definitely reads like. Uh, someone who has 15 years of knowledge behind it it's amazing and it's also fun to read which is startling for such uh densely packed scholarly work um it's filled with really enjoyable stories and a lot of uh in-depth perspective and i am so happy to have read it and i'm very happy to have had you on the show
1: thank you Connor. i really appreciate it and thank you for listening listeners
0: yeah everybody thank you for listening
1: bye